From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Graham Barrett on extended depth of focus IOLs and modest monovision, and Noel Alpins on corneal coupling in ablative surgery. Yeah, and you don't encounter this if you limit the myopicity focus to about minus one and a quarter. First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but ESCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you. Speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the annual meeting of the ASCRS in Boston, Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we'll hear from Graham Barrett on extended depth of focus IOLs and modest monovision, and Noel Alpins on why corneal coupling is still relevant even in the setting of ablative surgery. I'm here with Graham Barrett. You know, Graham, there there are there are multiple options for uh, treating uh, presbyopic patients, and I, I think the, the 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 mere fact that there are multiple options suggests that that you know that that, that there's no sort of one one panacea. You you've made a uh, study of this. Let let me get you to talk about it a little bit, if you want. So, Josh, um, you're quite correct. And what many surgeons try and do is adapt the solution to that particular patient. And they'll use an accommodative lens for some patients, multifocals for others, perhaps even considering corneal inlays. Uh, My approach is somewhat different. Um, I like to consider an option which in, in my hands has the greatest chance of success as defined by uh, functional near vision and patient satisfaction. And for me, this is modest monovision. Now, modest monovision, uh, you limit the myopicity focus to about minus one and a quarter. And there's reasons for that. One is um, possible contrast issues, binocular contrast issues with higher levels of anisometropia, possible impact on stereoacuity with higher levels of anisometropia. And you don't encounter this if you limit the myopicity focus to about minus one and a quarter. Uh, But of course, at that level of uh, myopia, you've got uh, some functional independence, but most patients still will require some reading correction for small print. The extended depth of focus was initially thought of as a complementary technology. And what I had in mind was a lens that would give you an extra diopter, diopter and a half of extended depth of focus, which you can do and not lose quality, not lose contrast. Of course, you can get more extension of depth of focus, but then you'll impact on quality. But if you can add uh, a doctor, a doctor and a half, 
with extended depth of focus, and you combine that with your modest monovision of minus one and a quarter, then you could uh, do two things. You could augment the reading ability, increase the spectacle independence. You would overlap the defocus curve of both eyes, uh, so you're in that blended vision. I understand vision, what you're saying, yeah. Blended vision situation and um, have a solution which does not compromise quality but give you greater functional than either modest monovision alone or an extended depth of focus lens alone. Do you assess patients for their ability to tolerate monovision before cataract surgery uh, with, with that degree of monovision? Sure. No, I don't, uh, Josh. So um, it's a poor term. Modest monovision, because at that level of myopically focus, you have binocular vision. And once again, as long as you limit your myopically focus to that level, your stereo is not impacted significantly, and um, you truly have uh, cooperation between the two eyes. So it's probably not the right word. You know, we tend to loop, uh, we, we tend to group monovision together, but in fact, depending on the degree, you have a different physiology. Yeah. As you, as you mentioned, the reasons there's many solutions, perhaps all of them entail some compromise. And rather than uh, considering these, these options, my, my preference is uh, modest monovision. And um, even without extended depth of focus, oh, well, this is a very useful and a very um, satisfying solution with a very high level of patient uh, satisfaction. Um, now, of course, if you consider modest monovision, there's many different lenses you, you could consider. And um, any monofocal eye lens would work well, but the concept of an extended depth of focus lens has several attractions. Now, of course, this type of lens can be used for distance in both eyes as well. But at this meeting, I'm going to focus on the utility in association with modest monovision. And um, my experience with uh, an investigational lens clearly demonstrates the um, possibility of extending the depth of focus by incorporating positive spherical aberration as compared to a negative um, aspheric intraocular lens. And I think you can see that the um, overlap between the distance and near eye is going to be greater with an extended depth of focus lens. And this is even more evident if you use an extended depth of focus lens in both in eyes. In both eyes, yeah. You have a better opportunity for blended vision. And it's interesting to look at the binocular defocus curve of the situation. And this is actual patient data that I'm sharing with you. And compare that to what's been published with a... Um, diffractive multifocal lens and you can see it's quite different and the the biggest difference is in intermediate vision where the modest monovision with an extended depth of focus lens uh, excels. Um, I did conduct a formal trial of an extended depth of focus lens in um, 59 eyes or 42 patients and um, we grouped the patients into one or two groups uh, one group where modest monovision was targeted and another group where uh, distance vision was targeted in both eyes, equal number of patients in each group. <clears throat> and th this is just showing that the unaided binocular distance security intermediate in the air was 6566 six, six, 
and 6.9.5 for the combination of modest monovision with extended depth of focus lens. Distance in both eyes does well for distance, still does well for intermediate, but not as good for near. The, probably the best way to measure functional near vision is the Salzburg reading desk. So this uses reading speed threshold, a uh, reading speed as a threshold for detecting near logmar acuity. And uh, it has been used previously uh, by other authors. And in a comparison of uh, what's been published for multifocal lenses, you can see that the modest monovision with extended depth of focus lens from our study performed extremely well, uh, comparable if not a bit better than what's been published. A uh, study in Moorfields looked at modest monovision compared to multifocals and uh, considered functional near vision, and they were quite similar. And it's interesting that the data from our trial of an extended depth of focus lens and modest monovision actually had uh, somewhat better than the monofocal lens and modest monovision uh, in the study that was presented at Ascaris last year. And of course, one of the concerns with uh, monovision is stereoacuity. When we looked at 19 patients um, who had uh, distance in both eyes compared to 19 patients who had modest monovision with extended depth of focus lens, the difference in uh, stereoacuity was insignificant. So we could not detect any impact on stereoacuity using a combination of extended depth of focus lens uh, in this uh, study. We also looked at patient satisfaction, and as you can see here that um, Spectacle independence was greater with modest monovision, but both groups were highly satisfied with their outcome, both the distance vision in both eyes and the modest monovision group. Now, of course, multifocals are evolving, and we've moved from four diopter ad to three diopter ads, now to two and a half diopter ads. We're even moving to trifocal lenses where we borrow some of the near vision uh, for intermediate vision. And um, I put it to you, in some ways, this is um, a different track, but from the same record. But the results of uh, the study that I am going to present today demonstrates that an alternative, which is an extended depth of focus lens and modest monovision, uh, is something different, which uh, can provide a presbyopic solution and maintain uh, quality of vision. So, Graham, there, there are there 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 are trade-offs certainly um, with. Extending depth of focus, and, and you know, the, the first one to, that comes comes to mind is 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 to to what extent do these patients sacrifice contrast sensitivity? That's what's very interesting. Um, of course, if you extend depth of focus to an appreciable amount, you will start to impact. But at the level that we chose for this lens, and this is selecting an appropriate amount of positive spherical aberration. Uh, we could not detect any impact on contrast sensitivity, either uh, photopic or mesopic. Yeah, it's really, really neat stuff. It, it, can can one achieve uh, the 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 same sort of of properties by not correcting all of the patient's cylinder? I mean, in a sense, that 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 that, that gives you an, Look, an extended. It's, it's often spoken about as a solution, leaving maybe a doctor with the rule to help extend the depth of focus, but you, you impact the acuity. I don't think that's a good, um, I don't think that's an ideal option. I think the ideal option is to eliminate astigmatism and rather rely on spherical aberration. 
um, the ideal spherical aberration of the human eye is not necessarily zero. Right. It truly is maybe for an optical bench, but our eye is not an optical bench. And for some reason, our visual system does better with a small amount of positive spherical aberration. That probably explains why we did not detect an impact on contrast. Sure. Because we're in the range which is considered uh, for optimum vision. So you can, depending on how much you target, get a significant amount, because we could demonstrate that, of extended depth of focus and not impact quality. Now, that in itself would not be enough to read. That's why the combination of an extended depth of focus with modest monovision works synergistically. This is this is great stuff, Grant. This is really really super. Look, I, w- I want to thank you for for sharing this with us today, and 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 for being so generous with your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Josh. I'm here with Noel Alpins. Noel, you know, I I, I may not look it, but I, I when when I was a a fellow, we were still doing radial keratotomy, and. AKs and it was just barely pre pre eczemer pre PRK at least in the U.S. and a, a big topic for us was coupling and to what extent uh, and an incision that is is tangential has coupling that's different from one that's a true arc and kids these days don't know what coupling is no so before we 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 even get to the topic uh, that 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 we that we that we want to talk about let me have you define what coupling is and why it is that we should care we should care about it well i think uh, to to make it as simple as possible and coupling isn't really a simple subject is is coupling is how much spherical effect does your astigmatic treatment have does it have no spherical effect? And this is really why we went from straight incisions, uh, tangential incisions to arcuate incisions. Mm-hmm. So therefore, arcuate incisions have 100% coupling. There's not really any minimized spherical shift. Um, and, and with lasers, there is really zero percent coupling in, in, that, a, in, a pure, in a pure sense. That, that's that's what I was told. It was that 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 you know once we entered into Exmer laser and we're doing toric treatments, we're doing cylinder treatments with the laser. We can forget about coupling. It's not an issue. And um, should should we forget about coupling? Well, I think in a perfect world that would be lovely. Um, and so, therefore, all incisions have one hundred percent coupling. There's no change in sphere. Mm-hmm. And uh, in lasers, um, all treatments have 0% coupling, which means the sphere changes by half the astigmatism. That's the perfect world. But the real world doesn't happen like that. So the, the last paper that really dealt with this that people use is the Faktorovich Maloney paper from 1999. And they got it right for incisions, but it doesn't work for lasers. And um, there's been some papers since then that showed all the data to be scattered and unreliable and inconsistent. So when we looked at coupling, we, we found two main things needed to be changed. And what we've done now is solve coupling so that coupling now works for incisions, it always has, but it also now works for ablations as well. So that um, what did we do to the formulas that were derived from this Faktorovich paper. One was a coupling ratio and secondly was a coupling constant. And guess what? You know what we found? We found that the coupling ratio 
was simply upside down. All you had to do was just invert the ratio and part of it now works for ablations as well as incisions. It sounds too easy to be true, but that's what you had to do. But the second thing that paper said was you have to really work with the total SIA. And that's where the second thing that made it inconsistent is that you don't want to work with the total SIA because the SIA is often off-axis. It doesn't actually appear where you want it to appear. So what we talk about is the effective SIA. In other words, how much SIA is having an effect at that intended meridian. So once you've inverted the formula and used the effective SIA rather than total SIA, you now have um, a system that works for ablations and as well as incisions. Now the next thing that's the most important thing is they had this coupling ratio, the coupling constant. Forget about the coupling constant for a moment. We put a new, a new uh, parameter in called the coupling adjustment. And when you get the coupling adjustment derived from those two previous things, that adjustment is the amount you have to multiply the astigmatism by to make an adjustment for the sphere. Now, uh, how, uh, how high does the astigmatic correction have to be that I, I need to factor coupling in? Because I, 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 I would guess that if, if the cylinder treatment's low, I, I, can, I can pretty much blow it off. That's quite true. So I don't think you really want to apply this in any astigmatic treatment below one diopter because there's too much noise. And so that anything above a diopter, it starts having an effect. And so you might say, well, what are we doing at the moment? I mean, how does it work with lasers now? So the lasers are now set that you have regression formulae that the laser companies have set up to set the laser to get a zero sphere or a, a spherical error to get the sphere exactly where you want. And then you do your own nomograms to adjust it. So think of it like lens biometry formulas. You went from regression formulae and then you got the more accurate theoretical formula. Correct. This is kind of the same thing. We're in regression formulae to maintain all the... Um, uh, spherical treatment at the level they want to be but now with this new theoretical formula it'll be easier for the doctor to be able to determine how I have to refine my nomograms for the spherical treatment and make their treatments more accurate. Now no, let, 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 me, let me shift gears here because um, I in, in a way it, it seems to, to, to me that that cylinder treatment, particularly in the context of, of cataract surgeries, sort of come full full circle uh, in that um, the femtosecond laser protocols that we're using um, were creating arcuates. Some of them are just intrastromal. Some of them aren't. Some of them are, you know, come, come all the way through. Um, where is coupling going to play play a role going forward, and and what what considerations? What what should we start to to think about now? And that's a whole new area too. I think that's that's so important. Well, um, as you know from the times that um, Troutman, he was using the wedge resections, uh, which is a little bit like an ablation because you're removing tissue. Correct. And then you went to Thornton and his straight incisions. Um, for radiokeratotomy and astigmatic keratotomy, which is on the opposite meridian. And then uh, Spencer realised that the straight incisions uh, are causing too much coupling in that you're getting, instead of getting 100% coupling, you're getting a myopic shift. So then we started using the arcuate incisions. Mm -hmm. So I think arcuate incisions are going to be as close as you can get to 100% coupling, but they're not going to be perfect. And so therefore, if you do your coupling ca calculations, if you're getting a spherical shift 
with your femto incisions, then you're going to be able to take that into account and build that into your lens biometry formula to make sure you're getting amotropia, if that's what you're aiming for. As a sort of surgeon factor later on uh, once we've looked at the data? It's a whole new field, and I think that once we get this uh, coupling going uh, in the software to make it easier to calculate, uh, it'll be blended into the lasers, uh, and that's something to come, I'm sure. So the next technology comes up and coupling comes well, back up yeah. again, yes. Well, see, the coupling isn't kind of a gidget idea. It's actually something which is a fundamentally important to eye surgery, that when you do an astigmatic treatment, you're going to get a spherical shift. Mm-hmm. And if you can't calculate it ahead of time and know what's going to happen, then with all the gadgets and gidgets you have, they're not going to work if they're not guided in the right direction. Yeah. You've got to give them the accurate guidance. Great stuff, Noel. Noel, thank you very much once more for being so generous with your time with us today. Josh, thank you for your invitation. I always enjoy talking with you. Graham Barrett comes to us from City Beach, Western Australia, Australia. Noel Alpins hails from Melbourne, Australia. Ask questions of Dr. Barrett, Dr. Alpins, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.